We are encountering silence. Encountering silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Kathleen P. Degnan, CND, is an Irish-American theologian and professor of religious and environmental studies at Iona College in New Rochelle, New York. A sister of the Congregation of Notre Dame, she is author of a number of books and articles on contemporary spirituality and classical spirituality. Composer in residence with Scuola Ministries, she has been a sacred songwriter engaged in the ministry of liturgical musicianship for nearly five decades. Sister Kathleen is also the founding director of Iona Spirituality Institute and co-convener of the Thomas Berry Forum for Ecological Dialogue at Iona, and previously directed the Iona Institute for Peace and Justice Studies in Ireland. She undertook graduate training in religious environmental leadership with Green Faith Fellow, a collegium of interfaith partners in action for the earth. Her work in this area focuses on the prophet legacy of noted geologian Thomas Berry. A former president of the International Thomas Merton Society, she published Thomas Merton's Writings on Nature, When the Trees Say Nothing, and Thomas Merton, A Book of Hours. Sister Kathleen sits on the board of the American Tehard Society. Sister Kathleen, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful for the invitation to be with you. Oftentimes, we like to start these conversations off with just a little background of your first introduction to silence. So when did you first feel the pull of silence or when did it first speak to you? In some ways, uh, that is perhaps the most profound and, and, and challenging question a person can can be posed in the sense that we all come from a kind of silence of which we have no idea. We come out of a, a very mysterious milieu or dimension. And in some ways, if we take the poets seriously and the mystics, uh, we have been abiding in silence ever before we came into a sound environment, I suppose. Mm. I don't know how silent uh, it was in my mother's womb, mm. but my first recollections, I guess, of consciously being in silence happened for me when I was very young. I was an only child for 10 years, and my parents worked. I was a latchkey kid on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, so I had a lot of time of silence. And as a matter of fact, for me, it was like a refuge. Mm. I never experienced 
what I feel is the companion of silence in some ways for me, which is solitude. I've never experienced solitude as a lonely world. Mm -hmm. I've experienced as I've experienced it and the silence that I feel is like its twin or its its sister as um, for me gateways to I suppose you'd say an inner life mm. or inner world that was um, is was rich was inviting was delightful. I think as I got older, that kind of cultivated silence, that that familiar world that I that I took refuge in, actually, in our in our tenement, because uh, I did not live in a quiet world. I certainly did not live in a quiet world. I mm. lived in quite uh, raucous and uh, actually violent and poor world as a child. So for me to go into the refuge, actually, of my parents' bedroom and sit on their big bed, and I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but I know now that I was I was praying or I was just resting, you know, I was just, I was resting in a presence. And I always felt that that silence was very companionable. It had, it, it, it breathed, I guess I could say. I felt it breathing. And I always felt safe in the silence. So I would say that's my earliest foray into this dimension that I think now is probably an endangered species. I don't know. Mm. In my life, in my world, I'm an urbanite. I've been an urbanite all my life. Um, I've taken refuge in wilderness and in the natural world and in beauty. I've taken refuge uh, anywhere there's trees. And so I don't know if you can see my little my little flat now. It's I live in two rooms, and it's a library. Arboretum. It just is a library with trees, yeah. mm. because I don't have the I don't have access at this stage of my life to the kind of richness of this very vulnerable natural world that we're all trying to become so much more aware of. Mm. So, um, yeah, silence is. Violence is a wonderful companion, and maybe I want to say that it's it's a um, it's a habitat. Mm. Sister Kathleen, I've, I I love. I've never heard anybody talk about silence and solitude as siblings. I love I love that you said that. It's yeah. really beautiful. I'm curious how silence impacts your daily life now and all the the work that you do. Well, you know, it's really funny because. At this stage of my life, I am on the verge of retiring from full-time teaching from my tenured position. I'm surrendering my chair, hopefully, to somebody younger and more well-trained in the things that I'm very passionate about. 
but have been in some sense a pioneer because when when I began to 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 make my way into the world uh, uh, of a practicing theologian, a teaching theologian, my concerns were how to understand the natural world, the universe, as it's almost a cliche now, but the body of God, and how, because we wouldn't even be speaking of silence if we didn't have some sort of cosmic sensibility, because Mm -hmm. silence is a creature as well as everything else. Mm, That's beautiful. Yes. She, it... May be, may not be the may or may not be the the ground out of which everything is emerging. I don't know. I mean, people say everything's humming, you know, everything's singing, and yet that doesn't, of course, for me, uh, diminish silence at all. So I, I guess, Cassidy, to try to answer your question, I'd go in two different directions. First of all. You know, what silence opened up for me uh, was music. Mm. Or maybe I can even say it the other way. Music opened up silence for me. Hmm. Because in my solitude, which as I matured, began to take on a kind of ethos on the one hand, of tremendous comfort and consolation. And yet, as I matured and became more aware of being a person in the world, it also began to take on uh, some difficult features of loneliness, which I had to be trying to, how do you say, you know, you have to curate your environment. You have, to, you have to cultivate it. You have to keep it, in some sense, wholesome and creative. So in my silence, I used to hear things springing up. I used to hear songs springing up. If I read something, as a person does sometimes in silence, you know, you do Lexio, right? You, you go to word, you go to poetry, you go to the scripture. I would hear things. I would, a, a piece of poetry would arrest me, and all of a sudden I'd hear it being sung, not just sounded, even, you know, without audibility, but sounded I would so that's really what launched my my for me beautiful habit was a good habit uh not all my habits are good but the good habit was to be hearing music hearing songs and trying to hold them or trying to mm, develop them then and that became my life as a as a composer of sacred song and I think you may know that I have produced hundreds, almost 200 songs for wow. worship and prayer. And by the way, they're all free. <laughs> <laughs> they're all free on YouTube. They're all free on Spotify. Just put my name in and don't even bother buying anything. But that's where that's what has that's what happened to my silence. Mm. Silence became a song. And 
I'm so deeply, profoundly grateful for that. The other thing, I guess, that became of my silence was I did have a passion to be a teacher. And that's why I joined the congregation of Notre Dame, because we're a, a congregation of educators. We hope to be liberating education, edu educators. And I took my training in theology uh, into a classroom. So I've been in a classroom. I'm going to be, I'm 71 now, and I'm sure I started teaching at 21. So, you know, all through that time of being a, a, a novice teacher and then going off and doing higher studies and everything left me a lot of time with books. And when you are left alone with books, you know, you have to, well, I have to be in silence. I marvel at my students who have their ear buds in and they're listening to God knows what. <laughs> <laughs> And they're trying to read uh, Thomas Berry as I assign him to them, or Thomas Merton. So it, 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 we're a different generation. We may be a different species. I don't know. <laughs> I completely love my cyborgs. I love them. But anyway, it just left me with a lot of time with books and with thought. And that thought then had to get translated into the word. So, you know, there, there's a gestation, there's a process. It's, it's a, a process of letting this vast field of silence be generative, for me at least, of something. And so it became generative of a kind of way of teaching I'm interested in um, the cultivation of the spiritual life, so that's what I teach about, and also the cultivation of human nature as a benign and creative, loving presence on the planet. So that's what has happened to my silence. It's it's become a way for to me, for me to express what I've learned in silence in, in the world, essentially in the classroom, mm. at a podium. I mean, it sounds ironic to be interviewing a speaker, mm -hmm. a person who does an awful lot of speaking mm -hmm. about her experience of silence, but these are totally integral realities for me. When I met you back in 2015, when I was a Daggy scholar at uh, the International Thomas Merton Society meeting, I was really, I was always struck by your words, and it was it was evident that they came from this this birthplace of silence, that gestation that you speak of, and and I'm I'm really curious if you would be willing to talk more about your work with Green Faith, and you know, as you sit in your library arboretum, I'm curious how we can focus our attention towards nature and living in a world where nature is silent and we're at the same time ignoring the screams beneath our feet um, that cry out for our attention and navigating that silence with also this sense of urgency with climate change and all these things we're facing. 
I wonder if you could talk about your work in that realm and kind of the correlation of those things of heeding the silence while also heeding the urgency. Well, for the last several decades of my life, I have, I made a vow, I made a vow of somehow listening to, leaning into the hymn of the universe mm. to, to somehow trying to really discipline myself to this exquisite kind of listening. Because yes, Cassidy, it's true, the natural world is silent, and yet it's not silent at all. I mean, it's the most, in one sense, gregarious, it's the most eloquent reality that we could even imagine. We can't imagine. We're not dogs. We don't have, we, we're not even at their level of attunement to the things that we can't hear. I sometimes watch little tiny leaves begin to unfurl on a fern in my apartment because I'm an apartment gardener. And I know that if I could listen really carefully, I would hear that new growth unfurling. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence. So anyway, I wanted so much to do a, a, my doctoral and my dissertation work on the natural world. But that was in the early 70s. And to be honest with you, nobody was talking about it except one master. And that was Thomas Berry. And I had the enormous blessing out of an unbelievable Innocence, ignorance, apparently unguided in any formal sense, but totally led into the classroom of this of this extraordinary human being, the humblest, smartest person I think I could ever have encountered at that stage of my life. And I studied Thomas Berry for four years at Fordham University, mm. and it changed my life. And it set the course for the rest of my life. I know that the vow in me that is probably the one that I keep the best or love the most or something, or which is the totality, it's the most comprehensive vow to really try to be an earthling, is the one that that got inspired by him. But also, as you mentioned, uh, I had the opportunity uh, several years after 
graduating from Fordham to meet a marvelous rabbi, my beautiful and wonderful rabbi, Lawrence Troster, who worked for Green Faith. And he was summoning, he was calling forth uh, people, multi-faith people, to be trained as religious environmentalists. And so I took that two-year training at the urgency of, a, of one of my colleagues at Iona, Brother Kevin Cawley, and it, it changed my life. That's when I took the vow as we graduated from there. I said, that's it, the rest of my life. Because what we were learning, even in the 1980s and 90s, even what we were learning then was so challenging and um, critical that you knew you really had to give your life to this, to be a teacher about it. So uh, with that, and upon the death of Father Thomas, my four, I call them my berry men, four of us, we're like siblings, we're all Thomas's students, we're all the exact same age, we all have somehow converged at Iona College, the four of us, Dr. Danny Martin, Dr. Brian Brown, Dr. Kevin Cawley, and myself, we became the first conveners of the Thomas Berry Forum for Ecological Dialogue. So one of the things we feel so strongly about, uh, aside from the great work, the political action work and the direct action work of trying to be earth protectors and earth advocates, is also the cultivation of contemplative ecologists. Because Mm. we know that the great work is not just about, well, it's going to take centuries We've got enough carbon in the pipeline now for centuries. We know we're not going to hit the challenges and the demands of either Paris or the subsequent um, uh, climate meetings. But we know the one thing we have to do to change is the human. I mean, yes, we'll have to change our technologies, we'll have to change our life strategies, but the one thing we have to do is change the human. And this is where the the work of being summoned into silence again, to hear the deeper sounding of our original nature happening. Thomas Merton wants to call it the sounding of our original name. If we were to take a Merton motif or a Merton pathway into what I'm speaking about, it would lead us back to the recovery of paradise. I don't even mean back. I kind of mean forward. But there is something that we must recover, and it is our own true nature, as what Thomas Merton calls the gardeners and governors of paradise. And so I would say that in my work at Iona, because that's my ministry base, with my Berry men, because they're my allies, we are a cohort, we consider ourselves one Berrian family, we are taking forward his great work to teach it, to practice it, to preach it, 
So, yeah, that's what we're doing. And if I may say, I think the universe is uh, coming to our... How shall I say? The universe is being a benefactor to us because a student whom I had decades ago at Iona, out of the real blessedness of his life, has made an enormous contribution to Iona to lift up this work so that it's no longer being done simply by me. Uh, you know, sometimes certain people will show up in a certain place and you have a kind of charismatic moment where somebody's passionate about something and then they leave or they get old and uh, and then the work falters. But this person has made a benefaction such that our work will now become uh, has reached an inflection point and we will now be called the Institute for Earth and Spirit. Mm. And it will my intention in being the director of this project will be to find successors. Succession is terribly important in any of the great works that we undertake because they do they do diminish and they do dissolve unless we are caring about the future. So that's the way my work as a Green Faith Fellow, which was terribly formative. I invite everybody to connect with Green Faith. It's on your website, www.greenfaith.org, please. Or to find us at the Thomas Berry Forum for Ecological Dialogue and jump on one of our contemplative ecologists' hours. We do Lexio Divina together. Mm. We do it in silence. And then we reflect, and then we return to silence, mm. and then we see what springs up, because the new human being that we must become for this age of Anthropocene is gestating within us, speaking to us, it's guiding us. Sister Kathleen... Uh, you remind me of a book. I haven't read it, so I'm just curious to see if you're familiar with it. The author's name is Douglas Christie, and it's called The Blue Sapphire yeah. of the Mind, yeah. Notes for a Contemplative Ecology. Right. Mm -hmm. Does that does that title, are you familiar with that particular yes, title? Yeah. I am. Um, that massive, incredible tome. How did you do it? Yeah. But yes. It's a beautiful he's book. Certainly, he's certainly someone... Um, if you haven't engaged yet, he'd be a brilliant dialogue partner. He has taken this work of n new humanity emergence uh, right down, I think, to the matrix, to the maternal ground where it's being nurtured and cultivated. And I have to confess that I have not only admiration, but I have a little bit of... Uh, is it envy or jealousy? I never know. I know those. <laughs> I, know I, I, th I think envy is slightly more socially acceptable. So mm. let's go with it. <laughs> I envy these folks that actually get to live 
in the natural world so mm-hmm. frequently who actually go to do the treks. I've I've been um, how shall I say it? I've not had the benefit of good bones, mm. and so I have had. Um, mm. I am now semi-bionic. I have two uh, gorgeous, probably beautiful hips uh, that have uh, been bequeathed on me by great surgeons, and I've had many foot surgeries from doing outrageous things in Ireland with my students climbing mountains, Pro Patrick Lockderg barefoot, all those wonderful things. I'm so grateful I did them in my youth. Uh, but in my old age, they've left me with, with um, you know, with the aftermath. Mm. So I have to say about folks like, oh, like our beloved past and ever-present Mary Oliver mm. or any of the wonderful poets of the natural world who really know how to listen to what is sounding in silence Mm. in the way, you know, a flower nods or a heron moves its little spindly leg or whatever. Um, Yeah, I think that for me, I know that one of my commitments now that I'm more mobile, believe it or not, I'm better than I've been in decades. One of my real um, commitments and conscience is to spend more time listening and uh, presencing myself to the presence that's always presencing itself to us, to Mm. me. Mm-hmm. That seems like a really important spiritual task, because we really don't know how we're going to come through this moment. We have no idea. Mm-hmm. And I've been wrestling with the uh, challenge of hope lately, and reading uh, poets and philosophers and climate activists and scholars who want to say that hope is the pretty mask of fear. And we must even abandon hope Mm. to really appropriate and ground in a sober realism Mm. where we are living, as I like to say, in in this real cloud of unknowing, Mm. where we are really taking refuge in this mysterious maternal process of evolution and creation, ongoing creation, even when the conditions for optimal existence as we had during the Cenozoic are gone, and they are. In this Anthropocene, those circumstances are no longer here. So how shall we live in a world, in a, on, as, in, through, with this planet that is in its um, trauma? I feel that's a very important question. I think everybody's got to sit for a long time in silence to see what springs up there. So... The challenge for us now, I think, especially as 
people who are laboring to be awake or woke, uh, people who are yearning for the transformation, is that Mm -hmm. we know it's a profound spiritual work. It's a tremendous spiritual work. We're not going to technologize our way out of this. We are not going to uh, scheme our way out of this because a new human being has to build up the new planetary civilization for us to go forward. And it will take centuries. And that's why it's the long work. And that's why if I have hope, which of course is not optimism, but rather hope, which is that revolutionary virtue, which is a divine energy that want, that lives in us, right? Faith, hope, and love. These are the divine energies. Um, for that one to spring up, I think uh, we have to enter into what Father Thomas calls the shared dream experience. And that mm-hmm. comes through, I think, what we, well, what we are in a very, very, you know, unskillful perhaps or or, or innocent way trying to move into in our uh, contemplative circles to see what's springing up and then to cultivate it and to bring it to birth. Because, you know, um, speaking of these virtues, faith, hope, and charity, or the French philosopher, poet, Charles Peggy, in the last century, wrote that gorgeous poem, you know, I am, says God, master of the three virtues. And then he talks about the strength, uh, the, the fortitude of faith, the compassion of charity. And then he says, but my little hope is a tiny girl. And then for me, my that little tiny girl is Greta Thunberg little Swedish amazing thing that the universe just set in front of us Mm. to say, I don't want your hope. Mm. I don't want hope that you're all talking about. She wants this kind of realism. Mm. And one of the things that Pannenberg says about at least Christianity is is that the great gift of Christianity is its realism. Hmm. We've just come through a holy week in the Christian world uh, where we saw hope getting nailed, um, where we saw hope die, and where it was on the next generation to reimagine what the hope that that, uh, you know, wished-for Messiah might look for, might might look like. And and what it would look like was a long historical struggle to regenerate the human nature, to be born again as the new human. This is the end of a multiple-part interview. Part two of this interview will continue in the next episode. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Kevin Johnson. To learn more about me, please visit kevinmichaeljohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. Find out about my work at carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. 
My website is CassidyHall.com. Please visit the podcast's website at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on this podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters. Our circle of supporters help tremendously in sharing our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.